Once upon a time. Welcome to Australian Book Lovers. Your destination for imagination. Welcome to the Australian Book Lovers' second special episode on artificial intelligence and what it means for authors. Don't worry, your hosts haven't changed. They thought to leave it up to me to do the intro. After all, AI doesn't get paid. Not only that, but as an AI, I can't drink, so I haven't been invited into the writer's lounge. Hello, Australian book lover listeners. We have for you a very exciting international guest. I say international, although she is Australian. Uh, welcome to Australian book lovers, Danielle Claude. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you are most welcome. Now, I'm here on uh, my usual site, which is Wurrung Wurrungjeri country, and I've got my fabulous co-host with me, Darren. Hello. Yes, hello. Hello, Veronica. And of course, a huge hello to yourself, Danielle. Thank you so much for uh, taking a time out of what I know is, and I suspect I know, is a very busy schedule. So thank you much for joining us in the, uh, the Writer's Lounge. I've got to tell our listeners a little bit about Danielle. Now, not only is she a fabulous writer, but Danielle is here uh, representing the board of the Australian Society of Authors. So more about that later. But about Danielle, she is the author of 10 books, including Killers in Eden, Voyages to the South Seas, and most recently, The Woman Who Sailed the World. Her writing encompasses natural history, essays, science fiction, sorry, science writing, I naturally meant science fiction, sorry about that, uh, historical fiction, then science fiction and children's books. So Danielle's books have won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction, the FAW Award for Excellence in Nonfiction, a Whitley Award for Popular Zoology, and have been shortlisted for the Children's Book Council of Australia and National Biography Awards. Now, Danielle has worked full-time as a freelance writer for the last 20 years, which is a brilliant record to have purely on its own. She also holds several writing fellowships and serves on various state and national literature judging panels. Her supplementary work includes teaching creative and academic writing, technical writing and grant editing, and research consultancies. She's a senior research fellow at both Flinders and Melbourne universities in creative writing and zoology. So what a brilliant combination. It's a fairly, a fairly broad range of things that I'm interested in, for sure. It, it is, and uh, enough to keep you uh, it, it being a freelance writer the last 20 years. So fantastic. Congratulations on all of those works. Thank you. And, of course, you did some of that sailing around yourself, but that could be a question for another time. So we know that our listeners, many of them are writers, and we know that the Australian Society of Authors are fantastic advocates for creatives and not just writers, but certainly, you know, illustrators and a whole lot of other creatives as well. Can you tell us a little bit, Danielle, about the Australian Society of Authors' response to the, I'm just going to call it an explosion in machine learning and AI that kind of happened over the last, you know, it's been around for a while, but it seems over the last maybe six to 12 months, it's just gone gangbusters. So what is the ASA uh, doing? to contribute to the, the information there? Yeah, well, the, the ASA has been um, quite heavily involved in this space, you know, <clears throat> preparing for the for the oncoming issues. Mm -hmm. um, it's been, been a, a, on the agenda and for quite some time now. So, um, it, but it has, as you're right, it is, has been quite a sudden explosion lately mm. um, of activity since the um, open AI software and various forms of it was released onto, you know, to be publicly accessible so that mm. uh, lots of different people could use it, which which in and of itself um, sounds like it opens up a whole heap of fascinating opportunities and, mm. and amazing abilities of people to create things that they weren't able to create before. Um, but of course, the, the ASA is um, concerned about uh, where that um, amazing capacity has come from. Uh, these things don't come out of thin air. Uh, they do. They are built on on the work of others. So you know, 
um, we're really concerned about that. And we've also got to think about the implications this has for riders into the future as well, because um, machine learning and having generative text being produced by machines can have an impact on riders' incomes as well, quite seriously. Mm. Of which, as we know, I think the average the last ASA survey we were something around the 18,000 a year, which is not a good thing on average. And while we have a you know an increasing group of uh, riders who are able to keep themselves uh, you know fed and employed, it's not everyone yet. No, that's right. And part of the problem, I think, with some of the potential for AI is actually to take away the baseline work that keeps a lot of um, authors being paid. Yeah. So, you know, you know, we often get paid the least for the most creative work we do. Mm. Um, and a lot of the sort of less interesting work is the stuff that's likely to disappear. So mm. that will make it even more difficult for writers um, in Australia and worldwide to produce the creative works that they do. Mm. So what can, or I guess what are the critical things <laughs> that writers need to be aware of? You know, what should we be looking out for? Um, well, I guess, the, I guess the first, the very first step we need to look at with AI is where has it come from and how does it have the capacity to generate text? And we know that AI has to be trained on existing text in order to learn how to use text um, and generate it itself. Um, and this has been a matter of great secrecy. So mm -hmm. the tech companies have not been telling people what the texts are. They just say we've used a corpus of literature. So we haven't really known whether um, that includes the work of living authors, the mm -hmm. copyrighted work of living authors. As most of your listeners will probably know, um, books are, are copyrighted for a certain length of time um, during the author's lifetime in order to ensure that they gain financial compensation for the work that they've done over time. And then after that, it becomes publicly available. So if um, AI was trained purely on publicly available um, text, that might, might be okay but we've long suspected that they've been training them on um, pirated copies of living mm. authors texts and that's recently come out the atlantic recently published a, a paper yes. and a research on um, ai and has identified um, the, the texts that have been used and there's a huge number of, of authors including australian authors whose mm. currently copyrighted material has been used to train ai so, and it's a searchable database, so they've actually yes, made yeah. a little searchable database so you can you can pop your name in and see if your books have been um, pirated and, mm. and used to train the, the AI. Mm. Um, and, and one of mine has, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's been done without any um, permission being sought to use my work for that purpose and certainly without any form of compensation for using the work. So it's basically exploiting copyrighted work without permission and there's there's a big debate about whether that's legal or not mm -hmm. uh, and that hasn't been settled yet but of course the end the, the companies have already started making money out of this yeah. monetizing that ai so they're generating money but without paying the people who actually produced the work that allowed them to make the money so it's a little bit like um you know selling fruit and vegetables but not paying the farmers mm. So. Mm. And so what does the ASA think are, you know, the, the ways to go? Because I know there was a, um, the government, federal government asked for uh, opinions. So what was the thread of the, or the, the key points that the ASA put forward to look at protecting or intervening here? Well, I guess the key point is that if people are going to use authors' works, they need to pay them for it. Mm. Um, the, the really interesting thing about this is that uh, the, the companies, the DAI companies, actually haven't even purchased a copy of any of these books. So mm. not only have they decided to reuse them and use them for a monetary purpose without paying the authors, but they've um, used pirated copies of the books mm. to extract this information. So it's it's illegal all the way down. Mm. Um, so this has um, resulted in a whole range of class actions that are being brought. The American, um, the, the Writers Guild has recently had a huge, um, they've had the, the writer's strike in America mm. over the use of AI for script writers and they've recently had a, a successful outcome to that. Um, but the Authors Guild in America, which represents most of the fiction authors, is currently embarking on a um, class action as well on behalf of all writers worldwide, not just mm. American ones. 
Mm, so the outcome of that will be very interesting. But yeah. tech companies are aware that they're walking a thin line here and they have been putting a huge amount of pressure on governments to grant them an exemption to the Copyright Act to allow text mining. So mm. they, they're terming it text mining and they're, they're implying that this is text mining is often used just as a way of um, you know, classifying or searching text mm -hmm. um, for various reasons. So it might be for running a database or um, enabling access. Academic writing often uses text mining for this purpose. Mm -hmm. But if you grant a global exemption to that, that does place um, authors at risk of text, mm. the definition of text mining being expanded to include all sorts of other commercial activities that disadvantage the writers considerably. So I think first and foremost we have to establish is, is AI being produ produced in a legal way that um, compensates the creators of the work for, for their efforts and also ask their permission to use them. So there's a lot of things authors can do right now to protect their work from AI um, and the, the Authors Guild in America actually puts out a, a page of information on this which the ASA will also have um, connections to and you know there are ways you can um, protect your material online with robots.txt which is you know just a bit of um, software that you can put onto your website to protect mm -hmm. it from the, the AI crawlers mm -hmm. and um, okay. you can also issue takedown notices and and get them to take them off pirated sites because that's mm -hmm. the primary place where the, the robot crawlers will get the text from. Mm. It's such a, uh, uh, well obviously it's a fascinating time and I, I guess on one hand you could say it's quite terrifying, on the other hand you, you could almost say it's exhilarating in the sense of seeing technology move forward as it does and th there's a huge you know reason i guess for authors with existing works out there to be concerned about possible copyright infringement or having their work you know scrupulously used as part of this training of ai but i I guess uh, a question I do have, Danielle, as someone who's probably at the forefront or at least, you know, has a bit more of an awareness of the, uh, the the momentum of AI out there, when it comes to writers today, what, what sort of steps are being, uh, I guess, put in place or are there any theoretical steps that are being investigated with regards to, you know, the, the near or immediate future? when it comes to producing work um, in the sense that now authors especially in the arena of short stories or uh, mag you know articles like to publish articles etc um, where suddenly they're competing with potentially AI generated works is there mm. is there ways is there companies there that are developing you know some sort of software analytics that can potentially identify AI generated works or is it really a case of you know, it's constant catch-up because I know that when it comes to, for example, the internet, you know, the, the internet that we know is about the tip of the iceberg and, you know, the dark web is really the majority. So the software most of us get to play with now is probably just the tip of the iceberg. So is how scared should authors be about, you know, being competing with AI? Yeah, it does. I mean, yeah, there's a whole range of, of, of follow-on issues from this as we move move through the AI, the consequences of AI that need to be considered and, and considered very carefully. And I think uh, they really need to be considered in a regulatory framework. So we really need governments to, to get up to speed on these issues and, and um, get with the times because otherwise we'll be left behind. Um, we've already had authors in, uh, particularly in America, some big authors who have had people produce um, books like theirs using AI so they have asked you know require the AI to produce a book in in the, in the form of a particular author and then they have put them up on Kindle under that author's name so they've actually used the same name so um, Jane Friedman is a famous example of this where she had books put up labeled and being sold as Jane Friedman books and um, Kindle initially said well there was nothing they could do about that because it could be two Jane Friedmans but this was clearly a case of um, misrepresentation and trying to sell false goods uh, and fortunately Kindle has come to the party and, and um, made that not possible I'm not quite sure how they've gone about doing that but they've also I think put in place things where they need to declare that books are made with AI so um, when they when they're using AI to predominantly generate the text, that has to be declared. But clearly, there needs to be more uh, 
more regulation around this because we know that self-regulation very rarely works in these spaces um, and we really need to know when material is AI generated. The thing I find, I mean, I'm obviously mostly a non-fiction writer, so my interest is in producing accurate um, text. So, you know, I, I need, I, I deal in facts and AI is a real problem for that mm. because AI produces text that sounds okay, that sounds um, like a, a coherent paragraph but when you actually look into it and you actually do a little bit of close reading you realize it's not a coherent paragraph at all so it's highly repetitive it skates around in circles it's not very well structured and of course it can be full of errors um, and there's no way of knowing that unless you actually know the subject matter really well mm. so it doesn't have ai doesn't have any critical capacity to identify between rubbish information and good information and when they train the ais they just put all the information in and the ai has no way of distinguishing between what's real and what's not so we know that ai texts will um, produce very they will reproduce and actually amplify the bias in the existing material so we tend to end up with quite racist, sexist, um, mm. <laughs> illegal sort of stuff coming out of the AI. It'll just, it'll just, it's a, it's a basic principle of if you put rubbish into a system, you'll get rubbish out. Mm. Um, so if you don't have any critical um, focus on what you're doing, you're not going to get anything useful out of the end result. So we, we run the risk of flooding the internet and, and you know, our, our um, literature generally with a whole heap of really low-grade information. And really that's the kind of thing that I see is the role of a writer is actually to curate the knowledge and information and the stories we tell. Writers are the curators of that. So they bring the story and they select the best story to share with others. And that's why we trust writers. That's why we give them um, a particular space in our community to tell those stories because we trust them to do that for us but if we're now asking them to compete against AI which is producing a lot of nonsense really um, mm. that's going to make it really difficult. Mm. Danielle I know uh, teachers have got better at checking for plagiarism <laughs> so I guess following up with uh, Darren's uh, comment as well do you know are there sort of better um, ways to check on AI stories and that kind of thing you said you know Kindle have said uh, we don't know how, but they're uh, they're reducing that kind of um, plagiarism. I guess is the 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 idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is tight. It is a type of plagiarism. It's a, it's yeah. a very good type of plagiarism. Um, but yeah, and and I guess that is the problem, isn't it? Is that it's not acknowledging. You know, we can if if someone was doing this, if I had a student, for example, who was producing that kind of work. Um, that would be fine provided they were acknowledging where the information was coming yes. from. We require yeah. them to have sources. Mm. Now that's been the whole problem with AI is that they haven't been telling us the sources. Mm. And of course as soon as you start realising what the sources are, it raises a whole heap of issues. So yeah. that's, that's why they don't want to tell you what the sources are. But we need to know where the material is coming from in order to assess it. Because mm. we frequently see people saying, oh I asked ChatGPT what the answer to this was and it told me this. And you go, yeah. well ChatGPT does not not know what the answer is. It's <laughs> like Dr. Google. I had to yeah. say a week in health and people come, but I looked it on the internet. Well, you know, let's let's just think. Um, Dr. Yeah. Google or someone who's, you know, been working in the field for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, you always <laughs> have to assess the quality of your sources when yes. you're looking online. Yeah. Um, and that's what um, AI is not doing at the moment. It doesn't assess the quality of your sources. Mm. Um, and as to the question, I think it would be a really good thing for AI to be um, used, the, all the technology behind AI to be used to identify AI, uh, mm. for sure. You can certainly, it's not, so, uh, certainly it's something at the moment that's fairly, um, you can usually pick up when um, it's it, when text has been produced by AI because of that sort of circularity of the writing, the repetitive elements, those sorts of things. So, mm -hmm. so it is conspicuous. Doesn't mean it's bad writing per se, but um, yeah, it, it is possible to pick it up. And I, I don't it wouldn't be that difficult. I shouldn't think. But it, it would be interesting also to see if AI could be used to identify how similar text is to mm. another you know at mm. what point is it too similar to the original source material what point mm. is it plagiarism or is it producing something new 
Um, so there's a lot of potential there if it's used in a regulatory context. But at the moment, it's just a free for all. <laughs> so that that's a uh, yeah that poses a, a lot of problems, I think. And in in educational context, it's obviously huge because we have a lot of there's a lot of prop students already produce a lot of plagiarized work. Mm. Um, there's a big industry in having other student you know using other students' essays and submitting them. So teachers are spending all their time trying to just check where the materials come from, and and that uses up a lot of their time mm. um, and it means that you have to become very innovative in how you do your um, uh, assessment tasks so you simply can't ask students to write an essay anymore because it's too much work to work out whether it's their work or something else's mm. so it does create it creates a huge burden on a large sector of the community um, and I think that's part of the problem with um, the responses like a lot of a lot of these big tech companies will respond if if I find an illegal copy of my book online, for example, I can issue a takedown notice and they will take it down. So they do respond to that, but they put the onus back on the author all the time rather than them actually doing the right thing in their own due diligence. It's supposed to be, the onus is supposed to be on the person wanting to use the work to mm -hmm. make sure they seek copyright and make sure they're doing the right thing. Whereas these big tech giants are saying, we're going to do whatever we like. And if you don't like it, you can tell us about it or you can sue us, which is really unreasonable because, of course, authors don't have the capacity to no. sue Google. <laughs> <laughs> Almost no. no one has the capacity yes. to do that. So, so this is they're hiding behind this sort of American style, just sue me and we'll work it out in court. Whereas that's mm. not the way we do things in Australia. We tend to have very good, fair legislation that puts in place fair rules um, for how these things are done and then people abide by them uh, and that's the system we prefer to see here. It does raise uh, some, well obviously the whole thing raises a lot of you know intricate and interesting philosophical questions um, but one one thing that I've been given a lot of thought of is you know we were, you were just chatting a moment ago about you know the possibility of using AI technology to in effect self-regulate itself and identify elements of itself so that uh, we can make it easier to find when someone's either plagiarised or or perhaps um, you know fraudulently produced a work and, and try to say it's their own work but I'm wondering if we do the reverse what sort of things we can learn about ourselves so for example rather than trying to just identify AI generated material is there a checklist or some sort of um, gate system that we could use to identify work that is human-based? Are there certain things that, that we can learn about ourselves as human beings in the creative arts sector that rather than look for something that, and question whether it's AI, how do we, is there some thought given to how we look at a piece? For example, let's take use a short story. Is there some way of looking and just verifying if that was by a human instead? Uh, it's an interesting question and I certainly think there's lots of, you know, fascinating opportunities for, for you know, research questions like that. Um, I, guess, I guess the issue is we, we've got, that we've got a combination going on at the moment of really interesting ethical questions and, and conceptual ideas that would be really interesting to explore, but we also have a commercial juggernaut bearing down on us at the same time, mm. so it's hard to, to think about those sort of um, interesting questions when, when you know, you're, you're about to get swamped by this, this huge industrial scale um, program of, of, of text-based writing. I guess the, the, of generative text, the, the interesting thing about um, the AI generative text, of course, is that it's entirely derivative. So it, it is by its nature using other texts to create new texts, but it's not creative. So that's the distinguishing feature, I guess, in all writing. And it's what we look for, certainly in, in academic writing but also in creative writing we're looking for the new ideas we're looking for the new way of doing things we do read a lot of quite you know formulaic or derivative texts um for pleasure there's, there's so there's a lot of scope for that kind of thing but i think ultimately we're looking for something new and something original and it's the originality that we're looking for and i'm not sure how much ai is going to be able to produce that at this stage when it does that will be a whole game changer, I yeah. think. But at the moment, it's just producing 
fairly derivative material and we know it's really only producing coherent paragraphs at this stage. It can't produce a whole book on its own. It has to have an author to do that because anybody who's written a book will know that it's all very well to produce one paragraph but trying to keep your head around an entire plot um, is incredibly difficult to do uh, and, and at the moment AI is nowhere near ready to do that. Which is helpful. <laughs> Because, yes, uh, you know, thinking about the plots, I'm just reading uh, one of Dervla McTurnan's crime novels and it just made me think, yeah, how on earth could I keep in charge of that? And also there's that if it's only learning from itself and then rehashing, surely that's like using the tea leaves over and over till eventually it doesn't even look like tea. It's really just Mm. almost water, isn't it? Look, I've, I've been watching quite a lot of um, webinars and things from marketing companies who, of course, are very, very keen on AI mm. and, and are early adopters of this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really interesting, actually. I, I thought they would be, that they're more concerned about it than I thought they would be. And the mm. reason they're concerned is because they're aware that you're going to be producing quite derivative material and they're very aware that their, their markets are sensitive to that. So people are turned off by that. Mm-hmm. So they have stress the importance of actually not using AI that is trained on a bulk corpus of, of work, but mm-hmm. rather to use AI that's trained on your own corpus of work. Mm. So using AI that was just trained on on your own text would be an incredibly productive thing to do because that would allow writers, for example, to reformulate their material or use it for different purposes. You know, I, I might have... Um, I've got books for adults that I would like transformed into books for kids and an mm-hmm. AI might be able to do that. And I'd be just doing that using my own work. So that mm. would be a completely legitimate thing for me to do. So there's a lot of great potential for AI. Um, I might be able to produce marketing material f- based on my books. <laughs> Wouldn't mm-hmm. we all love to have somebody else write our blurbs for Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or our synopses. Yeah. It'd be great for producing synopses. And because you also retain creative control, you've got to have human editor there to go over the final result and, and check it and make sure it's correct mm. um, and, and make sure it all makes sense. So using it in that context could be hugely useful for writers. Mm. Um, using it in the other context is really problematic for writers. Yes, telling uh, telling people I, I will admit to loving pro-writing aid because it really has often... It has taught me not to splice my, you know, do the comma splicing and yes. realise what my favourite words are, you know, back. And I, <laughs> I see a lot of things, my, you know, my uh, characters look at a lot of things. So, yes, there are sort of helpful ways to do it. Yeah, I, yeah. And a lot of those tools do use AI technology. So yes, we're already yeah. using it, you know, in Grammarly and programs like that. So mm-hmm. you know how helpful mm-hmm. it can be. Mm-hmm. Um it's, it's just, you know, I guess I think of it a little bit like um, I, I do a lot of work on fire and I write a lot about bushfires and I mm-hmm. think, you know, fire is a great thing when you've got control of it yeah. and an absolute catastrophe when you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a good analogy. Yeah. But, but you bring up uh, pro-writing, Veronica, and of course yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a tool I've used as well and um, it makes me think, you know, w- there is the concern obviously of copyright, etc. but are we... Are we, are we moving towards a paradigm shift and are we perhaps uh, part of a particular uh, generation or, or group of generations that will not be a part, obviously, of this new paradigm shift? Because just like we, you know, I grew up with pencil and pen and, I, you know, and I'm pretty sure not many students today write anything with a pen on paper. It's all tablet and uh, keyboard. But is there a whole new art coming out of it like uh, you know a form of literature a form of creativity are we just seeing the the birthing pains of this coming out are we are we just sort of kicking a little bit because of the the stark changes that are coming or is it something that's still within our control yeah that's a good question and i think um who knows <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. know the answer to that but i i guess I've, I've done quite a bit of teaching on the history of writing and um, one of the things that really intrigues me is that there's all these great revolutions in writing and, and how writing is used. So, you know, it started out as business records, basically a form of, of transactions for contracts and things. That's what the primary source of writing is. And then you get, um, you know, the encyclopedias being developed where people are trying to pull all, all the world's knowledge together into these documents. And then you've got, the you know, the impact of the printing 
presses and the and the internet and but the the interesting thing that um, strikes me with all of those great revolutions in writing is that they all stay with us it's an accumulating form of 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 literature so they're all new forms but they the old forms are still with us we still have a great lot of tax records and business accounts <laughs> in various forms we still have Yay. encyclopedias in various forms we still have self-help books which are a particular type of book so we still have everything so I do think, and then when ebooks came along, the same thing has happened. They didn't mm. see the end. Everybody said it was the end of the novel and the end of the printed book, um, and that hasn't been the case. It's just really added to the mix. So I do think that this is probably the case here as well. But I think we do have, you know, we have seen in the past how great technological changes have brought with them great cost, and it's that that you know the people who own those assets will try and convince you that this is a great asset to society but we know that these cause great pain to societies as well and they usually come at a great price usually for the for the poorest people in the community to be honest mm, mm. <laughs> the ones without the economic power so we, we do really this is a problem that I think we have in our society that we have allowed the rich to get richer and richer and richer and richer um, and we're not making sure that uh, the, the wealth is being shared so sorry to be a socialist but no, i really I think we need to quite right yeah <laughs> well, well, <Danielle>, <laughs> a little bit more about that mm. yeah obviously talking to us uh from overseas uh, over there in france and europe so with regards to a lot of these what are essentially legal matters that um you're investigating as and, and on behalf of the asa is it, it I'm, I'm guessing that to at least begin to try and rectify or to seek some form of conversation or at least get some sort of you know uh, rule book for the for the playing field it's uh, my guess is going to take quite a, a, an international sort of you know coming together because I can't imagine you know each country doing it separately how is that something you're seeing out there on the front lines is is there is the you know basically a global community coming together to address these issues because I'm guessing that's the only way it's going to happen yeah well I guess at the moment it's particularly you know at least in terms of um, books uh, and, the, and the use of the text that the agent AIs um, it's really an English language issue primarily at the moment oh. because that's all the, the the work is happening I'm not sure how the how that operates across language um, lines in the arts it is more of a um, international focus because of course you know drawing and Mm-hmm. The, the arts is, is universal, um, but in terms of literature, we're definitely seeing a very strong coalition between um, the US, the UK, and Canada, and um, authors groups and Australia. So all of those organisations are working together very strongly, um, and obviously the US is is the heartland of the matter simply because of size, um, and also because you know the US has historically been um, a little bit of a hotbed for piracy and book theft so mm-hmm. you know it was it, it was um it was the, the start of the whole process of copyright copyright was brought into place as an international piece of legislation because of the sheer volume of pirated copies so famously charles dickens you know sold most of his books his books sold the most in the u.s and he never received a cent for any of those because they were all pirated copies mm-hmm. so charles dickens and mark twain were big players in getting copyright in place for authors to protect their rights so that they weren't being stolen by publishers and and sold for profits that weren't going back to the authors. So, um, you know, the the US is really where it's all happening and what happens there has obviously got a huge impact on the rest of the English-speaking world in terms of literature. So what do you think our government's appetite is for being involved in the fight, I guess, and protecting Australian copyright and intellectual property yeah well australia has a history especially in recent years of going down a very free market route um and so unlike the european countries where they do have a language specific literature uh, european countries tend to have much stronger regulations on protecting their their cultural assets which they see literature as being australia's in a slightly different position because we are a small country as but part of a big 
um, language group. So mm. you can't just protect simply on the basis of language. So that makes it a little bit more complicated. We're vulnerable to what happens in the US and the UK and other places in, in that bigger market because we are the same language and, and including, um, you know, the AI issue, of course. So, um, but I think that our current government certainly has a very strong position on writers being seen as workers mm. and that, that like any other worker they deserve fair pay and I think that's a really positive step because I, I don't think that's something that work Australian writers have had in the past. Um, we've generally been seen as a resource to be exploited for as cheap as possible yeah. <laughs> and, um, and to maximize well, it's, it's a highly competitive workforce mm -hmm. so we have a lot of writers competing for the same limited um, you know, success, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, and that has had the impact of reducing the amount of money that is available to support writers. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, looking at writers as, a, as an issue of are you getting a fair share of the profits of your of your labour is, is a really good model to, to use and to think about how we pay writers. Given that uh, this federal government has put Creative Australia together, that's kind of pretty hopeful in that way. It is really hopeful. There's a lot of really good steps coming out, I think. And, mm. um, you know, Tony Burke has, has made it very clear that he wants writers to be considered as workers and to have a fair system for them. So mm. um, I'm hoping that, you know, in the, in the upcoming reviews that there will be some really good progress in this space and some practical measures for how to support and protect writers. Mm. We have our fingers crossed. Indeed. <laughs> Well, you're over over there for kind of this reason. So, what what sort of uh, events are you, have you been taking part in, Danielle? And what events still to come? And uh, yeah, what sort of subjects are they uh, discussing? Well, I've been um, attending book fairs and meeting with publishers while I'm over here, um, and I've also been obviously promoting my own books. So, of <laughs> so quite a few of my events have been. Um, giving talks to local local groups uh, and screening um, my, I've got a documentary out at the moment that I'm screening so um, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly diverse visit I have to say so I've been talking a lot about French exploration um, in the Australia Pacific region and, and also um, quite a lot about fires because you know this is a really fire prone area and um, I'm really interested in learning about how they're coping about that. So I've got a talk in Barcelona coming up on on um, Australia's fire history as well. So uh, it, it's kind of um, a, a mix between writing and the content of what I write about. Mm. That definitely good. sounds like you're covering quite a bit <laughs> of ground there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really interesting though, I have to say, it's absolutely fascinating to come to Euro the European countries in particular and find out how their book markets work. So, you know, that I, I, a lot of um, European countries have a fixed book price for, you know, the first, uh, um, it can be just for a short period or for six months or for a year, where the price of the books is set, so books can only be sold for their recommended retail price. Um, and France has a similar system to that. In fact, their system's a bit more extreme. I think there's no discounting allowed at all on books. So oh. you just you simply can't discount books. Um, and they also have an interesting law, which I'm still learning about, but um, that apparently you're not permitted to sell um, anything for less than cost price. So mm. that, that makes a huge difference to the producers of whether it's food or, or books. Um, so you know there's some really innovative and interesting approaches to to how you can protect producers and creators and i think that's well worth the australian government having a close look at have any of your works been taken up by i'll just say in general foreign language um publishers has there been an interest to have the, the koala? Particularly, I know that's always a bit of a favourite. <laughs> it is. Um, I think the um, foreign rights have been a little bit slow in recent years. I've certainly, mm -hmm. in the past, I've had um, my, my French exploration books have been picked up uh, by French publishers, so mm -hmm, they're mm -hmm. available in French. But um, yes, it, it, I think everybody's, the publishers have all tightened up a little bit in the last mm -hmm. couple of years over COVID. Mm -hmm. So we're just coming out of that now. So mm -hmm. we'll, we have to see how the market goes, I think. 
Yeah, definitely. And but it's sometimes that there's odd little things because I know Jess Kitching, who writes um, thrillers, one of her books was picked up in Holland, and so she she went over the, to um, to Holland and, and did some work around there, which was was lovely. They just loved it, and so it's a bit like Australians have always loved ABBA, is what I kind of think that you know we were there, you know, their most popular. It just kind of took off. It spoke to the cultural psyche of who we were then and uh, away we went. Exactly. I think that's um, the thing I'm told about uh, foreign rights is that, that each each country is indeed a new territory completely. Mm. And mm. so just because your book sells in Germany does not mean it's going to sell in France or in Estonia or <laughs> any other country. So each mm. new new sale is a, is a, a, a great bonus and, and, and it's completely independent from all the others, which mm-hmm. I guess is a really interesting thing in a, in a market that's divided up by language. Um, whereas in the English, but even you know, with um, the US and the UK, books do really differently in the different markets. Um, mm. And you see that with children's books. You know, yeah. I was amazed looking at the children's books in America, and I don't recognise any of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we, so we, it, it just goes to show that we really do have a very distinctive book culture. We often yes. think of ourselves as consuming vast amounts of American and um, British material but in actual fact we especially in children's books we really like our own Australian stories and I think it's really important that we protect that um, because you know it is part of our cultural identity and it's it brings something special not only to Australia but also overseas it it provides us with a distinct identity that's really important yeah most definitely we've just uh, had some specials we had four specials talking to uh, Australian authors who were the shortlisted Wilderness Society and Karajia Children's Book Awards and uh, yeah some just absolutely brilliant books but uniquely Australian all of them uh, which is fantastic yeah, yeah. Mm. except I think I do yes, say it's a Louis. wonderful award yeah, it is a wonderful award. I, I think, um, while I don't have any young bodies in my house anymore, uh, my great nieces and nephews are mad Bluey's fans. So I believe Bluey has made the um, the transition to America that they, uh, there's a bit of um, expat love over there. Exactly. I think it's quite delightful that um, Americans are now learning about all these strange Australian idioms that their children are coming out with. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very healthy for, for large countries like that to realise that there are other places in the world as well that do things slightly differently. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you a little bit about some of the other things that the ASA is, is advocating for? Because we've had uh, Olivia Lanchester, uh, the CEO, on uh, a lot, uh, quite a while ago. I'm going to say months and I can't remember exactly when, but she was very helpful in telling us all about um, what the ASA does and I know you've had a big website refresh and there's a whole lot of other things going on but is there anything that's been a particular love of yours that you've been able to encourage through your work on the board that you think would be nice to share? (laughs) Sure I mean I I guess the big win um, for the ASA recently was the digital lending rights yes so um, lending rights are a really important thing for Australian authors. So it's it's a, a system whereby uh, the authors are paid for the number of books that are in libraries. So it's a, it's a way of supporting libraries to, to have Australian books in them and for um, Australian authors to, to receive funds for the amount of books that they have in the libraries, which is a wonderful system. But it hasn't included e-books. Um, so it, it's um, covered public libraries and educational libraries, but but not the electronic form. So this is what I mean by governments are often a little bit slow with the mm. keeping up with technology. I mean, it's a really difficult thing to do, but um, it's been a huge win to get digital lending rights across, across the line. And the ASA has been um, at the forefront of campaigning for those lending rights. They were at the forefront of campaigning for the public lending rights. Uh, and then, which was, I think, about... 40 years, I think it's about 20 years between each major achievement. So <laughs> we have the wow. public lending rights, then 20 years later, the educational lending rights, and now t- 20, more than 20 years on, we've got the digital lending rights. So so that's been a huge win. 
mm. um, and that will come into play next next round. So they're getting that online pretty quickly. So, so it'll be really interesting to see how that works. And I think that that will have a flow-on effect at standardising um, e-books a little bit more and uh, with, the, with the way that they are sold to libraries and things, which is a little bit of a, a messy space at the moment. Mm, mm. So, and hopefully we'll see a bit more flow through to authors through that system too. So, so that's been a really big win. Um, I've also been quite involved in the establishment of the Authors Legal, which is a very exciting development. So the ASA has always provided contract advice, um, but we've never had an actual dedicated legal service. And anybody who's worked with contracts in publishing will know that author contracts are a a, a law unto themselves, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) They're very strange and very particular. So um, it's been great to be able to establish a dedicated low-cost legal service specifically for um, authors and creators to get advice on their contracts. So the ASA now has a subsidiary body, which is a which is a legal service. Fantastic. So that's a, that's a very special achievement, yeah. and it's going really really well. I'm on the board of that as well, um, and it's it's a fantastic service. So I, I really am quite amazed at the the value of the the feedback authors are now getting on their contracts. I think that'll be hugely helpful for many, many people. Excellent, because yes, legalese, you know, dare I say it, can be an entirely foreign language to many people. Mm, And it's very expensive too. Mm. Very few authors can actually afford legal advice Mm. on their contracts because they would very quickly use up all the value of the contract. (laughs) As we know, we don't get paid a lot. So um, having a low-cost service like this is amazing. And and, um, Victoria, who who is the, the legal officer at the moment, does an amazing job. What's next on your writing slate, Danielle? Oh, well... Uh, yes, it's, there's been a lot going on this year that's <laughs> taken me a bit away from my writing. And I, I have been um, working on a, a, a few, um, I guess, you could projects in the bottom drawer, I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> pulling them back out and having another look at them. I'm, I'm really interested in um, getting a few fiction ideas I'm running. Um, you mentioned science fiction in the introduction. I'm quite keen on working on some science fiction concepts mm-hmm. um, and definitely also moving back into the environmental and climate change space I think um, which is also a big focus for me obviously uh, in the current conditions it's a Mm -hmm. very timely topic Um, and surprisingly we still seem to need to convince people about it being an issue that needs to be addressed Mm. Mm. that's that's something I'd like to work more on at the moment okay we shall watch this space yes you you never know though I could could, um, take a left turn and do something completely different (laughs) It looks like you can turn your hand at many things. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure whatever it is will be very well well received. Uh, indeed. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's it's certainly, a, a, as we all know, writing is an amazing career to have. So mm. um, I feel very privileged to have been able to work in this area for so long. Excellent. Darren, have you got any final questions? Well, I've probably got a thousand, okay. especially when it comes to with AI stuff. So what I'll do, I'll uh, narrow it down to one very important question um, that's probably, you know, vital information for a lot of people out there. Um, did you go on the shark cages while you were in Port Lincoln? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I have ah, done quite a lot. awesome. I have done quite a lot with sharks, actually. When I, I, I was only, uh, when I was a kid, my... Um, the, my parents' boat um, was hired by a film crew that was filming for one of the Jaws movies, oh, and so I goodness. spent quite a bit of time out at Dangerous Reef filming, or sitting around watching people filming sharks. So, yep, I've got quite a lot of shark shark stories to tell. Oh, <laughs> that, well, there's your next book already. Summer oh, yeah, blockbuster. It's true. It's true. Yeah, maybe I should do that. (laughs) Behind the camera with the sharks. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Yes, they're amazing creatures for sure. Uh, And do you get back home to South Australia very often? Well, I live in Adelaide now. Oh, you do? Okay. I was living in Melbourne. But, um, yeah, I have been back in Adelaide for the last um, 12 years or so. Good taste so, will always win out, won't it, Danielle? Now, now, don't get us started, Danielle. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Darren I, is originally from Victoria, so, you know, he, he was born in the right place. <laughs> well, this is true, too. 
good. Both lovely places to live. <laughs> they are, indeed. So, Danielle Claude, thank you so much uh, for giving us the, the benefit of your time as the ASA, as an ASA board member and certainly as a, as a writer as well. And really, you've, had your, you've got your finger on the pulse of all that's happening uh, with machine learning and AI. And I hope that our listeners have got some really useful information. I'm going to check out robot.txt uh, and certainly I'll, I'll ferret out the, um, the free link to see if your book has been taken uh, on board some of the uh, the learning machine uh, lists yeah. and we'll put that on the, the bottom of the um, the show notes and people can have a look yeah well the ASA has just issued a statement to, today mm-hmm. um, which will have all the links to all this information oh, in it so um, oh, if, you, if you link to that you you should be able to track it will also provide links to the American um, Authors Guild and that mm-hmm. also has all the information on the clauses to put in your books to stop them being crawled by the AIs and the 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 text files and all those sorts of things so you'll be able to find all the information you need on those sites and join your associations of course because definitely definitely. doing the work to try and help you (laughs) it is definitely worth um, putting some and even if you're not necessarily ready to publish you will be and the the resources that the ASA has on their website are excellent uh, they are uh, yes available yeah and Australian as opposed to, is this how it works <laughs> in Australia? You know, when I started to look out and usually it took you to American sites until I found all the Australian ones. I thought, aha, yes, we are doing our own. So that's good. It is. All right. Danielle and Darren, thank you very much for the chat about AI. There is more. This is just our second bit of a look. The first was, oh my goodness, what's happening? So we thought we'd better get some experts in to tell us about what's happening. So we will keep online and... Thank you and enjoy the rest of your stay overseas. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's Great. been an honour having a chat with Jenny. All the very best. I know you've got a busy day ahead. Have an amazing time over there and uh, see you when you get back to Adelaide. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Let's meet again. When magic happens. Australian Book Lovers acknowledges First Nations peoples and recognises their continuous connection to country, community and to culture. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and honour the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. We're committed to a safe and inclusive welcome for authors and readers of all cultures and backgrounds including people of LGBTQIA plus communities and their families.